This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, officials from Colorado Parks and Wildlife recently spotted gray wolf pups in our state. This is the first wolf family that wildlife officials have seen in more than 80 years. Just ahead, we'll hear more about the family of gray wolves, and we'll check in on CPW's mandate to reintroduce the species to our state. We'll also learn about the work it takes to keep waterways from being filled with ash and charred debris after a wildfire. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. As life begins to look more normal by the day for many people across Colorado, some are ready to put COVID-19 in the past. But researchers are still hot on the trail for more understanding about the coronavirus. One big question still out there, can people vaccinated against COVID-19 pass on the virus to others? To help answer that question, the COVID-19 Prevention Network, which is the clinical trials network created last year by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, is conducting a nationwide study at over 20 universities. Dr. Brian Stauffer is the medical director for the Clinical Translational Research Center at CU Boulder, which is one of the schools involved in the study. CU Boulder has about 250 participants. I think the unique um, aspect of, of this study is it's prospective and randomized, which most of the rest of the studies that have generated data that address this transmission question have mostly been observational. The current trial design is essentially three groups. One group that is um, not interested in getting um, vaccinated, and so that will be a non-vaccine trial uh, group. And then the other arm is individuals who are interested in getting vaccinated but are willing to defer vaccination or get it immediately. And that group of um, study participants will be randomized to getting immediate vaccination after enrollment or waiting three months and then getting their vaccine at the essentially at the end of the of the clinical study period. To keep an eye on things, researchers are utilizing nasal PCR tests, which look for the genetic material of the virus itself. And it's not just the participants who stand to be swapped. The study is also enrolling cohorts of individuals who are closely associated with the main participants. What the study does is looks at nasal swabs on a daily basis and symptoms of the main participants. And then if one of the participants becomes PCR positive, then these other individuals also do nasal swabs. And so we can actually see in kind of real time, prospectively, uh, how many of the people that are around that index case in the main cohort um, get infected, um, presumably from their exposure to the index case. Dr. Stauffer says researchers involved with the study are still trying to bolster enrollment rates in the trials and that they're hoping to get some meaningful information from the study in the fall. Throughout the pandemic, healthcare systems have been forced to change how they see and treat patients. That includes using virtual technology, a field that has grown exponentially, partially due to the coronavirus. As we move closer to the end days of the pandemic here in the U.S., medical advancements of the last year will be here to stay. Colorado Edition's Aaron O'Toole recently spoke about how we may use these virtual tools in the future with Christopher Davis, the medical director for virtual health at UC Health. I'd like to start just by asking, what does virtual health mean? What falls under that umbrella? 
virtual health or, or virtual medicine is, is really just medicine conducted at a distance and, and using typically some sort of uh, digital health technology. The, the one that most people think about is, right, is, is getting on their smartphone or their computer uh, in a video conference and speaking with, um, with their doctor. But telephone is, is virtual health um, and as is secure messaging. And then there are two other sort of categories uh, called mobile health or mHealth, um, which is sort of all the things you can do on your smartphone, whether or not that's for a, a health uh, or weight loss app. And then this bucket called remote patient monitoring, where we're actually able to use a wearable device or, or a connected uh, medical device, such as a glucometer, um, and, and capture your vital sign or other biometric information and, and make better healthcare decisions. Who primarily uses virtual health? Is there a certain demographic you're trying to reach? That's certainly a changing demographic. And again, sort of pre-COVID, even then we were fairly surprised at who was using uh, certainly our virtual urgent care services. Again, we, we pictured, hey, this was going to be for uh, perhaps sort of younger millennials or people who are really tech savvy. But it really, it's for people who are trying to prioritize convenient care. I'd say, again, that's shifted or, or we've really had to focus um, during the pandemic to reaching people who, right, who may be homebound and, and can no longer access healthcare in sort of a traditional way, right, where it's, where it's particularly hard to actually get into a doctor's office or come into the hospital for testing. Pre-pandemic, I think there really was more of a focus on trying to deliver healthcare into um, underserved rural communities, especially with subspecialty care. In the early days of the pandemic, virtual care was the only way to access healthcare. The sort of the rural urban paradigm sort of fell away to some degree. And it really just anyone and everyone was using it. How did Colorado doctors use virtual health to care for COVID patients? Again, in March of last year, in those sort of those early weeks, a lot of patients were, of course, scared and wanted a way to talk to their healthcare providers without potentially exposing themselves to sort of a, you know, a room full of sick people in an urgent care or an emergency department. In those early days, frankly, there was no testing, right? So it was really all about triage and trying to reassure those patients to sort of remain in place and sort of wait it out, but also looking for those patients who were high risk and who really needed to actually be seen in the emergency department. So again, that was sort of like the first month of sort of the COVID pandemic. And then as, as, as testing resources expanded, that became sort of the, the, the best way to again, be seen, we could say, hey, yep, you qualify for a COVID test and then get you into sort of a drive-through site quickest and most convenient way possible. Now, again, we're using virtual health and, and using sort of secure messaging, right, to actually expand and notify people that they're ready to be vaccinated. How has virtual health changed and grown throughout the pandemic? We saw something like a 900% growth in volume in our virtual urgent care and, and, and thousands of percent growth in just um, in primary care and sort of in terms of virtual visits. A lot of that has shifted back to in-person care and I, and I think appropriately, but we, we sort of have built this, we just sort of say to this sort of flexible format where we could very quickly flip in just in a day into virtual visits from in-person and facilitate better access. That's That's been one operational lesson that we've we've learned. But again, back to this idea of 
how do we start to redesign our healthcare system? And all of healthcare is sort of moving slowly in this direction of what's called fee for value rather than fee for service, where again, we're, you know, the, the whole business model thankfully is changing towards outcomes and rather than just pure, pure volume. How do you think we'll see virtual health used in our healthcare system going forward when the pandemic is over and done with, fingers crossed? I mean, just to talk about what we're working towards is just that virtual health just becomes health and healthcare. And it's just another tool that any provider can utilize when and where it's appropriate. And so that a provider really can flex between a patient that they're seeing in person and then a couple of minutes later be delivering care through a virtual visit or through secure texting. That's what we're working towards. You know, there's this notion of the quadruple aim, right? Which is better outcomes, lower cost, a better patient experience, and also a better provider experience. And what's so interesting about virtual health is that it has the possibility to affect all four of those pillars of the quadruple aim. And then patients absolutely love this. They absolutely do. Dr. Christopher Davis is the medical director for virtual health at UC Health. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. After a record-breaking wildfire season in 2020, many communities in the West are in recovery mode. It's tough work to make a burned area accessible to hikers and bikers and to keep nearby waterways from being filled with ash and charred debris. From Aspen Public Radio, Alex Hager caught up with a team doing exactly that in a new burn scar along the banks of the Colorado River. My name's Chad Rudo. I'm the Water Quality Program Manager for Roaring Fork Conservancy. Where are we? Can you kind of tell me what we're looking at and, and, and why we're here? So we're maybe a mile up the Grizzly Creek Trail, uh, right by the rushing Grizzly Creek that you can hear in the background here. And we're here to do some trail work around the fire. And as we've walked up the valley here, we've seen the classic sort of mosaic burn pattern where we see some patches that are truly untouched and still in great shape. We're seeing some burned areas We've had a lot of fires all across the West, all across Colorado, all across this region particularly. Is there something kind of especially dangerous about the fact that this one happened on top of the Colorado River? The Colorado River is an incredibly hard-working river. It supplies water for 40 million people as it makes its way all the way downstream to the, the Gulf of California. We are right here just a mile away from the Colorado River, so it's a very direct line for, you know, anything that happens here in the burn area to just make its way right into the Colorado River. And we're not that far upstream of Glenwood Springs. When we're looking at the bigger picture of what happens with burns along really any body of water, but right here, the creek and Colorado River, you know, why does that matter? Where, where does a fire fit in with the water? When you have less vegetation to hold soil in place, then there's the potential for a lot of mud and debris to make its way into the stream system. Water quality is also a potential impact. Different chemicals that may come from the burn area itself, or also, you know, a lot of uh, pollutants will attach themselves to sediments. So just by allowing sediment into the stream system, um, those pollutants can sort of tag along, if you will. Can I get you to tell me your name and what your position is and, and why you're involved here? My name is Carl Nelson. I'm the field coordinator for Roaring Fork Outdoor Volunteers. 
This is my eighth summer doing this job. It's my passion to be working outside and being on the trails, so happy to be here. You've got quite a set of tools here. What, what are we carrying and what are they gonna do? Well, I have a McLeod here and a Pulaski. The McLeod is really good for raking debris and uh, moving stuff out of the way for fires, but it's also a really good trail tool for scraping gravel, dirt, and debris. Why is this restoration work so important? I mean, you know, the, the stuff that we're doing today with these tools that you got strapped to your back, what kind of difference is this gonna make for the, you know, the wild landscape? If you maintain the trail and make it a clear, easy to see walking path, then people will stick to that path and walk on the same surface. We're not trying to sanitize the wilderness. We're trying to ha have it be a more enjoyable experience for all of our users and less impactful to the wildlife around it so everybody stays on the same trail. We're coming into what potentially looks like another year of these dry, drought-like conditions. And so it adds to a sense of urgency as far as being cautious around our, our local forests and, and keeping an eye on our water resources. You are someone who has dedicated quite a bit of time in life to protecting water. Why do you care? Like, why is this important? Not only is this... Um, this important to me from a work standpoint and water quality standpoint, but I live in Glenwood. Um, we're raising a family in Glenwood. This is actually a trail we've hiked a lot uh, with our boys. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a personal connection as well. So I'm happy to get out here and do this work and I'm actually excited to, to bring my boys up here and kind of see how things have changed and, and talk about what those changes mean with them. That was Aspen Public Radio's Alex Hager. This story is a part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, supported by the Walton Family Foundation. On Wednesday, we'll have more on the drought in the West from KUNC's Luke Runyon and how it's impacting the region's largest reservoir, Lake Mead. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last week, Colorado Parks and Wildlife announced officials had spotted three gray wolf pups with their parents in northwest Colorado, not far from where wolves were spotted in 2019. The young wolves are notable because they are the first pups to be spotted in the state since the 1940s, when gray wolves were hunted, trapped, and poisoned to near eradication in our region. And though this wolf family is significant, sightings like this are, in theory, bound to become more common as CPW continues to plug away at their mandate to reintroduce gray wolves in the state by the end of 2023, something that was narrowly approved by Colorado voters last November. Jason Blevins writes about the outdoors for the Colorado Sun, and he's with us now to talk about this family of gray wolves and CPW's wolf reintroduction efforts. Hey, Jason. Hi, Henry. So we've got this gray wolf family, the first in eight decades in Colorado. Let's set aside the wolf reintroduction measure for just a moment. What does this mean for our state? What does it mean for the gray wolf species? Well, it means that the wolves have naturally migrated from Wyoming and possibly Montana. We'll see where they actually came from, but they've been spotting these wolves since 2019. And this is the first sort of wolf family that wildlife officials have seen in more than 80 years in Colorado. So pretty significant that the wolves have begun a natural migration into Colorado. 
this Wolf family we're talking about here unrelated to CPW's efforts? Correct. In November, the voters approved this measure that basically directs the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission to create a plan to have a reintroduction of wolves in Colorado by the end of 2023. The agency right now is kind of working on a plan, and they, they want to make clear that the fact that wolves have naturally migrated into Colorado does not impact their efforts. They are continuing to plow forward on a reintroduction plan. Where are we at in that process? CBW sort of on a mission to create a self-sustaining population of wolves in Colorado. Um, they are launching kind of a public campaign. They will be touring the state more than 40 meetings in the coming months. Um, they've formed a sort of a technical advisory group, which involves a bunch of uh, wildlife biologists and land managers from Montana and Wyoming, places where wolves have already been reintroduced, as well as Colorado. And they are going to come up with a specific plan for reintroduction. And then that will be vetted by a stakeholder advisory group. And all these meetings are going to be, some are public, some are private. A lot of the stakeholder advisory groups will be public. But the, the idea is get onto the Western Slope, tour you know, every major population area, get everybody who is, is going to be impacted, get their uh, concerns, their issues, include their voices in this plan. And that's all coming in the next two, three, four months. And this measure, it was pretty close. How does that feed into, you know, these listening sessions? I bet many Coloradans, especially on the West Slope, have some concerns with this reintroduction. Indeed. There's, um, you know, ranchers and, uh, you know, agricultural community has a lot of concerns over their livestock. So, you know, they will be um, really concerned about a program that reimburses ranchers for lost livestock to wolves. Big game hunters, you know, are very concerned about elk population and as well as CPW is concerned about all these things. So the vote really came down along, you know, front range voters in Boulder County and Denver really pushed this vote through at, at that sort of last minute. Um, whereas many communities in the Western Slope, a vast majority of them were opposed to this. So this plan really will highlight the um kind of rural urban divide that we've been seeing grow in Colorado over the uh, past you know couple decades and really that that divide is highlighted by this wolf vote so I imagine this CPW public campaign will have a lot to do with what these rural communities think about wolves and how much different it is maybe to what they might hear on the front range. And is there anything that Colorado Parks and Wildlife biologists can glean from this wolf family to sort of help them in their process? Oh, for sure. And that's where CPW is really excited. You know, this is going to give, you know, this family how they how they move, how they sort of adapt to Colorado will will for sure inform CPW field staff and wildlife biologists as they make this plan. One of the real concerns in opposition to wolves in Colorado has been, you know, Colorado's pretty densely populated, way more than, say, Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, right? Like, people live and play all over this state. We don't have wide swaths of wilderness like they have in uh, Montana and Idaho. So how this wolf family kind of adapts to, you know, uh, the recreating, you know, backcountry hiking, skiing population in Colorado will for sure inform how this plan unfolds and you know in many ways cpw's kind of has a, a test family to kind of 
and observe and watch and maybe harvest some ideas for what they might use for their uh, their plan for reintroduction. Jason Blevins is with the Colorado Sun. Jason, thanks as always. Thank you, Henry. Since 1893, the Daily Sentinel newspaper in Grand Junction, Colorado, has printed their newspaper in-house. Their current printing press was built in the 1980s and has been running for nearly 40 years since then. But next month, the press will have its very last run. The publisher of the Sentinel, Jay Seaton, announced in April that they would be shuttering the historic press and outsourcing distribution to cut costs. The Montrose Daily Press will print the Sentinel, and workers will drive copies 70 miles north five nights a week. This fits into the ongoing state and national trend of media outlets shifting from print to online, and some local outlets have gone defunct altogether. According to a report published last month by Colorado media professors Kareem Eldamanhuri and David Capini, the number of newspapers in the state has dropped by at least 16 percent since 2004. Three counties qualify as news deserts, areas without any newspapers, and 33 more are on the verge of becoming so. The shutdown of the Sentinel's press means that their press workers, some of whom have worked there for decades, will soon be out of work. One of them is Lonnie Vincent. He's the press room supervisor and has worked at the Sentinel for nearly 35 years. They built this press brand new in 1984, and it was a top-of-the-line press, and I've been here ever since. I mean, I got hired in 87, so it was still a brand new press when I got hired. Vincent still remembers the first time he saw the press. When I got hired, there again, I walked in the door. This thing stands three stories high, weighs 300 tons. It sits on about 90 steel pillars that have been driven into the ground for 45 feet. And right under the fold of the main center of the press, the concrete is 10 feet deep. And when you walk in the door, you're thinking to yourself, what did I get myself into? How in the world do you make this thing work? It's too big. It's huge. Vincent has seen the Sentinel go through major changes. A few decades ago, it was common for a Sunday paper to span up to 64 pages. Now, Vincent says, a Sunday paper is typically between 24 and 28. And circulation numbers have decreased, too. Nowadays, they distribute around 16,000 copies every Sunday. But back in the day, that number was a whole lot higher. When I got hired, any given Sunday, our circulation was anywhere from 32 to 35,000 in the last probably 10 years, the internet has taken a huge chunk out of the newspaper industry. I mean, we print a morning newspaper, and you get your newspaper at 5 o'clock, and by, by noon, all that information is outdated because they got new and better information for you. In April, he first heard the news about the press shutting down. It kind of breaks your heart in the fact that I wanted the opportunity to turn it over to somebody else. I think anybody that's worked at this job for over 30 years would love to have some young guy come walking in young guy or young woman walk in and say, show me how to run this thing. And it's cool to show somebody something for the first time and watch their eyes get big and say, wow, did I do that? Yeah, you did that. You did it all by yourself. And I don't get to do that now because we're going to print with another company. It kind of tears at your heart. I would stay with this job for another two or three years if the job would stay here. To Vincent, the press has more than earned its place in Colorado history. I think it's already spoken for itself. It's done everything we've asked it to do and has done a lot of things it should never been asked to do. I mean, it's got an odometer on it, literally, and it's turned over a million miles at least a dozen times. And tomorrow it'll fire up again at 5 o'clock and we'll, we'll print some commercial work and then we'll print the daily. It's done everything we've asked it to do. 
Some of Vincent's greatest memories are from working with his press crew over the years, and he's still figuring out what to do after the great machine spits out its last paper. We're going to print the 4th of July Sunday newspaper, and that's it. I mean, the last day on the job, I think, for anybody. You can walk away and say to yourself, thank heavens, that's over. Or you can walk away saying, man, what am I going to do next Monday? You know, it's just it's bittersweet at best. I mean, I don't want to quit this, but I'm sure I'll find something else to do, and the rest of the crew will, too. I'm probably, I have restored old Chevys all my life. I really enjoy that in my off time. I'm going to finish some cars and sell them and get a little money out of them. But like I said, the last day is going to be weird, and the next Monday after that's going to be even more weird. Right now, the publisher of the paper plans to turn the press into a museum, and Vincent says it will stay in working condition. When we wind it down and get ready to turn it off, we're going to get it real clean and take all the ink off of it, get everything off of this thing that can corrode, and we're going to make sure that if we ever have to fire it up again, we can. That was Lonnie Vincent, the press room supervisor of the Daily Sentinel newspaper in Grand Junction. If you want to see photos of that historic press for yourself, you can do so at our website, KUNC.org. And that's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.